So we have been working. It's, it's the second week of Advent now. And, and it's this time of preparation for the celebration of the birth of Jesus. It's time when Christians around the world begin to prepare themselves for this celebration, this, this Jesus event that took place thousands of years ago. But what we found in, today, in today's culture, especially in the United States, that, that we've really lost the focus of what Christmas is all about. And that, that we, even Jesus followers, now celebrate a cultural Christmas more than we celebrate a biblical Christmas. And so we decided that, that maybe we would try an experiment this year. Maybe you would, instead of just looking at the Christmas story and just maybe telling the story, that we would enter into the Christmas story. And we would do that by worshiping fully. We would do that by making a commitment to spend less, to give more, and to love all people. And by doing this, we would enter into that story. We, we were, we've been asking this question, can Christmas really change the world? Can it still change the world? The impact that it had on the world 2,000 years ago, can it still have that same impact today? And last week we looked at the idea of worship and, and what, it, what it means to worship. We, looked at, we started in Isaiah chapter 1 where God is just calling out Israel. He's like, you know what? You people aren't, you're, you're missing the points. The way you're living your life is not the way that I've called you to live your life. And your worship, yeah, you're going through all the motions. You're playing church. It looks really good. All your sacrifices and burning incense and lifting your hands in prayer. But your heart is so far from me. And God would go on to say that, you know what? Your worship has become a burden to me. And then he tells me, don't even pray anymore. I'm not listening. Because they have drifted from a heart condition and they just wanted to do all the outside external stuff. Remember we said that religion has a way of focusing on the physical, many times leaving the spiritual behind. And then we looked at Mary and Joseph and, and the wise men. We said they, they were part of the first Advent season. And they entered into that story in worship. Mary would, would praise a God who saves. And Joseph, out of obedience, when it didn't make sense, obeyed what God had called them to do. And the, and the wise men, they decided that it didn't matter what they came up against. They were going to find this king and they were going to worship. And we ended, we ended last week with maybe asking a better question. Can Christmas change us? And so this morning as I was, as I was preparing for this whole idea of spending less, um, we're going to ask a lot of questions this morning and a lot of questions that, that we all have to personally answer for ourselves. And so be prepared to scratch your head. Be prepared. I hope that you were going to be challenged because now by putting ourselves into the Christmas story, we have the opportunity to, um, to go deeper spiritually in our relationship with God. Now, we, we kind of get that. I mean, worship, this whole idea of worship. If you've been kicking around church for any amount of time, you know about worship, and you know this idea of spirituality, and maybe you can engage it just a little bit more. But spending less? Really? I mean, to spend less during the season of Christmas, which has become a season of excess. Can we really go against the flow, go against the crowds? I mean, to spend less requires work. It requires research. It requires thought. It requires budgeting. Can we really spend less? I mean, it's so much easier 
the pop online, a few clicks away, everything's delivered at your door, ta-da, and you just distribute it to everybody you know. Or you jump into the mall, you make a day of it, you fight the crowds, you go with your list, dun-dun-dun, down the list, and you buy your stuff. See, one of the hardest things for us to get over about this idea of spending less is going to be the fear that if we don't spend money on our friends and family, they might think that we no longer love them. And if we don't spend enough money on them, they might feel that they have fallen down on our relationship scale. But what if, what if we gave creatively? What if we gave personally? What if we cultivated relationships with our friends and family? Maybe they would see our love in a very different way. Maybe they would begin to see our love in a very deeper way. Maybe they would experience even the love of God. But when we talk about spending less, it's a very vague idea, isn't it? What's less? Less than last year? Less than my family and friends spend? Less than the average American who will spend $1,000 at Christmas? Maybe, maybe the question is not what's less. Maybe we have to start asking better questions. Maybe we have to start asking a question like, how much is too much? And how do we know we have too much? What's the standard of measure of too much? Is it like the Donald Trump standard of measure for too much? Because if, if we're measuring against Donald Trump, I am doing extremely well with not having too much. And I'm sure most of you are too. But what is, how do we measure too much? You know, if I think we took an honest look at our lives, the way we live, the things around us, we can all come to the conclusion to say, in reality, compared to the rest of the world, we have too much. That's, that's the truth. We are, you can call it a blessed nation, or you can call it a nation of excess. We have too much. In 2009, this year, revolving credit in America will reach over $900 billion. That's kind of credit card-ish debt. $69 billion of that $900 billion is now in default. It's late. We Americans account for 4.5% of the world's population. We supply 19% of the economic activity throughout the entire world. The majority of that activity is fueled by debt. And so how much is too much? So let's continue, let's continue to ask some questions. Remember a few weeks ago we did the shirt experiment, right? And everybody kind of looked at the labels on their shirts and we trying to figure out where those shirts came from. We asked questions about what we know about those countries and the workers that actually made our shirts. But, but let's, let's ask the question, how many shirts do we really need? John the Baptist, there's a story about him in the Bible, right? And he's laying it down, man. He's just like verbally spanking people. And, and he's like, you know, you know produce fruit in, in the line of repentance. And they're like, well, what does that look like? What does the fruit of repentance look like? And he gives a very simple answer. He goes, if you have two shirts, give one away. Okay, that's, I, I get that. But what does he mean by that? Does he, does he mean if I have two of the same shirts, I should give one away? Or does he mean that I should give like half of my shirts away that I have? Or just give all my shirts away until I have 
one shirt? Because the reality of it is, I have a lot of shirts. I have short sleeve shirts. I have long sleeve shirts. I have button down shirts. I have button down long sleeve shirts. I have dress shirts. I have t-shirts. And I have undershirts. There is a difference. Undershirts are white t-shirts. You can wear under a shirt, but they're with color. I have tank tops, which are not really classified as shirts, but they are in the shirt category. I have sweatshirts. I have polo shirts. I don't even know what that means, but I have a polo. I have golf shirts because there's an Honor Palmer on here. Got it at Marshall's, 1995. Really inexpensive. I have a lot of shirts. What does he mean by giving, if I have two shirts, to give one away? That would leave me with only one shirt if I only had two shirts. But if I have 50 shirts and then I give 25 away, am I doing what he said for me to do? But then I still have 25 shirts. How long would it take me to wear 25 shirts without doing my laundry? I just thought about that. I don't know. 25 days? Unless I schmutzed all over one and then I have to change during the day, then I could break it down to like maybe 20 days. But are you following me? What, what, is he, what is he talking about? I think for us, 2009, it becomes about balance. Balance in our own lives. To balance our desires against our needs. To balance our desires against the needs of our communities and against the needs in the world. You know, reality is, I thought about this, I cannot get along with only one shirt. Sorry, and most of us can't. But what does it look like for us to have that balance, to live that generously, where we would give our clothes away? And you know why? We have too much clothes. You know how I know this? Because sometimes when I bring clothes to Acts 4, they go, we can't take any more clothes. People are giving clothes away by the boxes because we just have too much. How much is too much? They, they gave away a truck full of clothes yesterday that they didn't buy, that people gave them. For us in America, we have to find balance. Can our consumerism become more about our necessity than just fulfilling our constant need for entertainment or fulfilling our desires. It would mean that we would have to spend time researching purchases, thinking about what we're going to spend our money on. Sometimes the cheapest price that we can find comes with a very, very large human price. What are the consequences of this purchase? Are we buying from companies that care about their employees and treat their employees well? Do we even care if the companies care about their employees or treat their employees well? Do the companies that we're buying from, do they, do they rub against some of our most basic fundamental moralities? Do they need to sell their product with sex? Because sex sells. I mean, watch Victoria's Secret commercials on TV with my eight-year-old son who's like, you know, Duh. Ethan, close your eyes. Why? They're not kissing. You know, I, I know. Because <laughs> yeah, I always put my hand over his face if somebody you know, does smoochies on TV. Or, or look, at, look at perfume commercials. I saw one with Britney Spears. I was like, for real? I mean, like with the arrow in the back. I'm like, ew. I mean, she's a... I don't get me going on Britney anyway. So, so I mean, so do, do they have to use sex to sell their products? And what about the environmental cost? This is where I fall desperately, desperately short. See, I still believe that recycling is just the way the man is trying to keep a brother down. I'm sorry. I, I know that sounds wrong. That, that and not being able to drive with your cell phone talking in the car. That is wrong. I'm sorry. I see women put makeup on. Cops talking. 
Don't get me going. So anyway, so the environmental cost of the products that we're buying, what's that look like? Does the company care about the environment? You know, I am learning about this whole idea of going green and, and what that looks like for our family. And you know, it takes work. It's not easy. It's so much easier to throw it all in one bag and I have all waste. You know why they call themselves all waste? They take all waste. They dump it in, it's gone. I never see it. But there are better ways for us to live, better ways for us to steward the world that God has given us. And so the purchases that we make, the money that we spend, is it supporting a company that is caring about the environment or is it supporting a company that just, it doesn't care? And so let's ask some more questions. What are our spending habits what are they teaching our children? I mean, most of us in this room, unless you're holding out, cannot afford to give our kids or our grandkids everything that they want. But I will guarantee that most of us parents, grandparents, give our children much more than they really need. Our kids have a lot of stuff that they really don't, don't need. And if you want to get in that line... I'm in the head of it. You can start the line behind me because I am guilty of that. Are our spending habits, are they teaching our kids character and integrity? Are they, teaching, are they teaching them to put others before themselves? I am extremely confident that the sheer volume of presents that my children will get this Christmas will pull their focus away from the Jesus story. Whose fault is that? Theirs or mine? Christmas in America has morphed into this whole idea of getting what we want instead of giving to people who are really in need. I understand that this year many of us will give extra to very charitable causes. Hopefully at the end of our Advent conspiracy, we'll, give a, we'll put a nice check into the uh, Charlotte's Web Fund so Chris can have money to help um, the needs of, of families with terminally ill kids. But what if the Advent conspiracy could be an attitude we have all year round? What if worshiping fully, spending less, giving more, and loving all people were our philosophies that we take into the everyday, not just around Christmas? But really, spending less, is that really a smart idea in this day and age, in our economy? Our economy, in part, is fueled by our consumer spending. So if you have it, you should go out and spend it and help your economy. Should we? Does it make sense to spend less? Because if we stop spending and then people will lose their jobs, and if people will lose, start losing their jobs, then industries suffer, and it just, it's, a, it's a slow trickle down to things get really bad. But you see, spending less is just that. It's about spending less, not spending nothing. It's spending Less, and we can begin to consider what we're spending on, what we're supporting, what products are we buying, what companies do we support. We spend less unless spending more makes better sense. Let me give you an example. Do I need to upgrade my 27-inch Sony TV to a 53-inch high-def plasma TV to celebrate the birth of Jesus? Not to celebrate, to play Halo, yes. 
Xbox, absolutely, I need 53 high-def inches. You're absolutely right. But to celebrate the birth of Jesus, I do not have to do that. I can begin to look at the way I'm going to spend my money. What if I began to spend money on, with a company called the Terra Project? The Terra Project is a, is a group of people in India who are taking um, indigenous people uh, low in the caste system of India and helping them become artists and training them and then selling their goods on a website called originalgood.com. And, and they're getting a fair trade and they're keeping gainful employment and they're able to keep their homes, they're able to feed their children. They're able to stay out of poverty and off the streets by this one small company that's taking handmade jewelry and selling it around the world. And on originalgood.com, you can buy all kinds of different things from all kinds of different people around the world, handmade stuff, knickknacks for your house and all, all these things. And I know how many of us really need more jewelry. How many of us need more, more knickknacks and stuff for our house? But it's Christmas, and it's exactly the thing that you are going to buy anyway. And now it can become... Not only about the gift that we give, but about supporting people in fair trade who are getting fair prices and safe working conditions, and, and even in some cases, health insurance. We can learn to spend our money differently. The question comes down to this what is our money really supporting? Did you know that there is something called chocolate slavery in the world? This is blew my mind when I, when I found this on, online. Some of the best coca beans for making chocolate come from the Ivory Coast in Africa. And there is a slave um, trade, um, indentured servant, forced labor to get people to work these farms. And some kids are sold at the age of 12 years old for 30 or 40 bucks to these farmers to work these farms. Let me, let me read you a couple things that I found online. Let's start with the politics. In June 2001, the House of Representatives voted to consider a labeling system to assure consumers that slave labor was not used in the production of their chocolate. The U.S. chocolate industry responded by an intense lobbying effort to ward off legislation that would require uh, slave-free labels on their products. The Chocolate Manufacturers Association hired two former Senate Majority Leaders, Bob Dole and George Mitchell, to lobby lawmakers against the labeling. The U.S. Chocolate Manufacturers Association maintained that a slave-free label would hurt the people in West Africa by leading to a boycott of all West African coca and therefore not contribute to the abolition of slavery in, in that part of the world. It was said that chocolate producers could not say absolutely that none of its chocolate was produced by slave labor because... Um, because beans picked by free workers were mixed in with those produced by slaves. The chocolate companies maintained that they were not responsible for the slavery in Africa because they have no control over the coca farms. The U.S. chocolate industry is heavily consolidated with two firms controlling approximately two-thirds of a $13 billion a year chocolate market. One of the two biggest firms that controls that is Hershey's. After media articles with eminent federal regulation looming, the chocolate industry finally agreed to take action in 2001. So they created this bill that would aimed um, to stop the worst forms of child labor by 2005. 
The protocol has been criticized by such groups as the International Labor Rights Fund, which has said the protocol is inadequate alone to address the complex problem of child labor in the coca sector effectively. It has resulted in a privatized mechanism without binding and enforceable rights. Other critics have pointed out that the protocol does not forbid the use of slavery in general, only the enslavement of children. The industry could effectively abide by the protocol and still use coca produced with slave labor. And then there's a story. Recently, Ali and 18 other boys labored in a 494-acre farm, a very large farm by Ivory Coast standard in the southwestern part of the country. Their days began when the sun rose, which at this time of the year in the Ivory Coast is a few minutes after 6. They finished work about 6.30 in the evening, just before nightfall when the fireflies were beginning to illuminate the sky. They trudged home to a dinner of burned bananas. If they were lucky, they were treated to two yams seasoned with salt water gravy. After dinner, the boys were ordered into a 24-by-20-foot room where they slept on wooden planks without mattresses. The only window was covered with a hardened mud except for a baseball-sized hole to let in some air. Once we were in the room, nobody was allowed out, said this guy, I can't pronounce his name, a thin, frail youth with serious brown eyes who is now 19. The gross gave us cans to urinate in. He locked the door and kept the key. We didn't cry. We didn't scream, said Ollie. We thought we had been sold, but we weren't sure. The boys beca- became sure one day when Legros walked up to uh, Mohamedou and ordered him to work harder. I bought each of you for 25,000 francs. It's about $35, the farmer said. So you have to work harder to, re- to reimburse me. Ali was barely, barely four feet tall when he was sold into slavery, and he had a hard time carrying the heavy bags of coca beans. Some of the bags were taller than me, he said. It took two people to put the bag on my head. And when you didn't hurry, you were beaten. He was beaten more than the other boys. You can still see the faint scars on his back, right shoulder, and left arm. They said he wasn't, looking, he wasn't working very hard. The beatings were part of my life, Ali said. Anytime they loaded you with bags and you fell while carrying them, nobody helped you. Instead, they beat you until you picked it up again. At night, Ali had nightmares about working in the fields forever and about dying and nobody noticing. This is modern-day slavery over something that we will spend a lot of money on this year, chocolate. But if we were to spend differently and spend more on fair trade chocolate, we can come against those companies that just don't care about the slavery that's going on that's fueling a $13 billion business. So what does our money really support. See, we spend less unless spending more makes better sense. So is it possible to spend compassionately and reasonably regardless of our economic system in America? See, the problem is not capitalism. The problem comes down to individualism. It says, that, it says I have the freedom to make choices. And in those choices, if I want to shop around for the cheapest price that I can find on anything that I'm going to buy, it is my right as an American to do so. But we know that sometimes the cheapest price comes with a very, very high cost in human life. The choices that we are making can be devastating the lives of so many people. Jesus' followers are part of that problem. And ignorance can no longer be our excuse. We as Jesus followers need to become part of 
the solution and no longer part of the problem. It's unfortunate that the celebration of Jesus' birth is when consumerism and debt reach their peak. And Jesus has come to give life and give it in abundance. And Jesus has come to free the captives. But many times how we spend our money puts people into captivity. Great Christmas message, Dennis. Way to lift our spirits. But this is the truth. This is what's happening in our world. Let's turn to First Corinthians. Uh, I'm sorry, Second Corinthians, chapter eight. See what the Bible has to say about this stuff. Remember the Bible? It's so weird for me a lot to like start off with the Bible. I got like three quarters through this teaching. I'm like, where's the Bible? I need some verses. Um, verse 13 out of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard pressed, but there might, that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. So we give, we spend differently, maybe even we spend more, not so that the poor become rich and we become poor or we go into debt. What Paul is talking about is there should be some type of equality among economic systems. Let me explain what's happening as he's writing this. The Gentile church at this time is experiencing a time of wealth. And they have been blessed by the Jews because salvation has come to them from the Jews. And so they have this material blessing and they have a spiritual blessing. And the Jews in Judea, they are suffering because they, are, they don't have the money. They don't have the wealth to survive. They don't have the resources. And Paul says, listen, you have been blessed both spiritually and both with, with resources. And he says to them, please go and be a blessing to other people because one day the shoe may be on the other foot and you will need the help. We always have to remember that our, our, um, our motive for giving has to be the recognition of God's blessings in our life, both spiritual and both in, in the material. God is more interested in your heart condition and not necessarily just what your hands are doing. If you're giving from a place of recognizing what God is doing in your life and you're giving joyfully and you're motiva motivated by grace and, and you give, and even if you can't give as much as you want to give, but, 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 you're, but you're giving and you're making those efforts, God sees your heart and he's worshiped and he's glorified. But if you're just like, yeah, whatever, I'll just do what I have to do just to shut this guy up in the front of the room, don't waste your time. Keep it. God's not honored with that attitude. God is honored with a heart condition and not necessarily only what your hands can give. 
God's plan has always been very clear. From, from the Old Testament days when he would give manna, he would tell them, listen, don't take too much. Just take what you're going to eat for the day because it's going to get all nasty if you do that. Right up through Jesus where Jesus talks about a place of giving out of sacrifice. God's plan has always been um, get what you need, share what you can share, and never hoard the blessings of God. Turn to First Timothy. Chapter 6. First Timothy chapter 6, I'll begin in verse 6. But with godliness, with contentment, is great gain. I'm sorry, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. We have brought nothing into this world and we will take nothing when we go. When our spirit leaves this body, everything that we've worked for, everything that we've acquired, everything that we have stays here and we go. In fact, the very breath of life that God has breathed into each of us, we also give that back. Nobody dies by inhaling. It's always with an exhale. And we give even the breath of life back that God has given us. We brought nothing into this world, and we will, will take nothing from it. And it says if we have food and clothing, we should be content. Okay, let's keep it real. Reality check, not me. If I just have food and clothing, maybe I, I'm an American. I am not fully content with just food and clothes. I need stuff. I, I, I think that some of you might be in the same boat as me. But can we learn to be content with less? I'm learning, and God is, is he's, it's like I'm, I'm in the garden under the, under the weight of, of just conviction. I have so much junk in my house, I've begun to give it away. And now I'm really worried because I'm getting to the end of the stuff that I don't use anymore. And God's going, oh, no, don't stop. And he wants me, he actually wants me to give away stuff I use. How rude is that? <laughs> right? And I've begun to, to, to live with my hand a little bit more open. And I hope by his grace that someday both my hands and I can live with them open and, and begin to give away the things that I have. It's interesting that a wealthy man without food, will die counting his money. Henry David Thoreau, he, he writes this, a man is wealthy in proportion to the number of things he can afford to do without. Because wealth and possessions and money without godliness can get us into a lot of trouble. The pursuit of wealth without godliness. I don't believe you pursue wealth with godliness. But the pursuit of wealth can get us into a lot of trouble. Riches can create lusts of the heart and desires in our heart that need to be fulfilled because why? I deserve it. I work hard for my money. 
And in that, sometimes you have enough money and all of a sudden you find yourself, you can do anything you want and you get yourself into trouble. Just ask Tiger Woods. You know what he said in an interview? That he was sorry that he went against some of the things that he believed in. He fulfilled the scripture in 1 Timothy that it led him down a wrong path. He made bad choices. The love of money, not money, not possessions, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And so this Christmas, this Advent, are we willing to rethink how we spend our money? The Bible begins to, to lay out kind of a, a, a little framework. And the Old Testament says that, that, that we should give 10%, it's called a tithe, of, of what we, we bring in. And that's just not resources, I don't believe. That's just not your cash. I think it's your time. I think it's, it's, it's your very self. And then Jesus talks about something very radical that we would give sacrificially, that we would give till, till we are going with, with less. Um, C.S. Lewis had a great idea, a great um, philosophy. To, to, in order for us to be cured from, how did he say it? Uh, to order us to break away from the power of wealth is that we need to give our wealth away. And he didn't have a formula. He never had a percentage. This is what he says in Mere Christianity, which is a great book, and I, this should be mandatory reading for all people. He says this, I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I would say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charity expenditures excludes them. So maybe in the end, this Advent season and Christmas season, um, maybe part of the equation is we, we spend less. But maybe another part of the equation is we begin to learn how to spend differently. Let's pray. God, um, God, I confess that I am guilty of all of the above. God, and I want to ask your forgiveness, not only for me, but for everyone in this room. That you would search our hearts and that you would begin to shift priorities in our lives. God, that's hard work, and the reality of it is um, sometimes we're lazy. Don't let us get lazy. And as we continue to move through Advents to prepare our hearts for the, for the celebration of the birth of Jesus, I pray that this year, for each one of us, in a very special way, it would be different. Thank you for your love, even in the midst of our failings. Thank you for your love, even in the midst of our stumblings. 
Thank you that we can go to you as a child runs to their daddy and you stand there with open arms and you welcome us and greet us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.